Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, July 27th, 2023. We're back this week with Mayor Rick Blangiardi. Mayor, are you happy? I don't know if people do have welfare <laughs> checks have. on you. Well, you know, I am happy. I'll tell you why. Today is a day of reflection. Today happens to be what would have been my dad's 100th birthday. And so I've been thinking about him today on June, uh, July 27th um, and all that that entails. So, yeah, I, I, look, I am happy. I'm proud of our team. I'm proud of the work we're doing. There's a lot of challenges, big challenges, serious challenges. Um, but that's what we all signed up to do. So. I don't know, you know, it's not like in a constant state of happiness per se, but you feel good when you, you, you feel like, okay, we've, we think we know how we want to approach this problem. Here's a solution and we're working on it. That's, that's always exciting when you feel like you've got a good game plan and you're executing. Speaking of something to get excited about, we've had some key hiring announcements recently. Yeah. Um, let's start with Dita Hollyfield, your new director for the Department of Enterprise Services. Uh, well, we're really excited about Dita. You know, she brings a depth and breadth of experience in creating events, events that I think I said earlier that people remember high quality events, but she just has a boundless energy and a passion. She's well connected in town. She's been in media. She understands, uh, if you will, the viewer, or the let's say the attendee experience. You know, I'm so used to saying the viewer experience from my years in broadcast. But you know, because she's she's done events and. Um, we're just really excited to have her. Uh, we, we think she's going to bring a nice dimension uh, all the way around for both, uh, because her people who worked for her loved her. I know I've heard from all of them, they're so upset she left, uh, that she's just, you know, I think that the people who, she's got 300 people now to be responsible for in our enterprise services department. And the fact that I'm not sure, I'm not sure, but I think she may be the first woman to hold this position. I think it's been a male-dominated position and probably driven because of the golf courses more than anything, right? But having the golf courses and the zoo and the various venues at the Shell and the concert hall and in the arena and all the potential that that represents for people's recreation, if you will, in life, I think um, I'm looking forward to what she's going to do. That's interesting, the attention that you paid to kind of the customer experience, say at the Blaisdell Concert Hall or, or yeah. even the Shell. Um, but when was the last time you were a customer or like you said, a viewer to those city properties? Well, I haven't gone to an event in the, sh- in the, in the arena for a few years. I used to go a lot once upon a time, but I have gone over to the concert hall. And you know, and it's been okay, but the money we're investing right now, some $46 million, is to bring those facilities more into the 21st century. So they they needed help with air conditioning and Wi-Fi and, um, you know, sound systems and plumbing in the bath, all those kinds of things. Uh, and we're going to clean them up as much as possible and make them feel pretty good. Uh, and I think when the money all gets said and done and spent, it's, it's going to be an enhancement, right? An enhancement for the customer when they come and they buy their ticket. But there's a lot of other things that've got to go along with that. Not the least of which is what are the events we're staging mm-hmm. and, and what's happening there and what's the attraction. And then you add to that the food and the wine or alcohol or, or drinks in general, and all the other aspects with respect to um, you know parking friendly staff, all that stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. And parking and everything. So there's a lot. There's a lot to this, and I think you know. The venues have had, there's so many long-term employees that are so proud to have been there and they've helped people. I think it it is and continues to be a friendly experience. We just want to, along with the remodeling, just give it a a redo and refresh it all. 
When it comes to the Blazel Arena, yeah, or even maybe the concert hall, have you? Is there one event that stands out to you? Maybe a concert, a comedian, because they've hosted everyone from Elvis. To all to, of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was in Japan when Elvis was here with the football team at UH way back when, and I think that was 1973. Uh, you know, you know, I look. I, there were there were there were times um, way back when with basketball, seeing some incredible. Um, victories by UH team in yeah. the Rainbow, old Rainbow Classic that was, I, I remember, really incredible nights where it was before the Stan Sheriff was ever built, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I can also remember not that many years ago when we got involved in the promotion business when I was in TV and we brought in uh, Billy Joel mm-hmm. one year and that was really good. I felt really good about it. We brought in Neil Diamond too and we actually were the co-promoters. I had never done that before but we had the opportunity to bring in these acts. We thought it would be great for the town. Turns out it was. Uh, it was a little bit of an older crowd I was that showed say, up. <laughs> I, uh, I was sitting there remembering some of the people coming in with walkers and oxygen tanks and stuff. And I thought, well, this is not exactly the rock concert that I admired, but everybody had a great time nonetheless, which was, which was fun. Uh, but that was, th- those are kind of cool experiences because, uh, and I used to know the late, great Tom Moffat and uh, such admiration and respect for him. And, you know, and, and, but I got to vicariously understand what it was like to say, wow, will they show up? You know, and the other thing we did a third time is we brought, we helped bring in the Beach Boys at that, but we did that at the Shell. Uh, but those were fun acts, and to be involved in that um, was exciting. But going back to the Blaisdell, yeah, I, th- those were nice evenings. Another addition to Memorable. your team uh, comes in the Office of Housing yeah. in Kevin. Auger. 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 Yeah. Uh, what are your expectations when it comes to his addition? A lot. <laughs> and I made it really clear to him because we're real serious as we have to be right now, especially in the week of the emergency proclamation just mm-hmm. got signed about the expectations and our need for housing. And part of what we didn't have in place when we first came into office two and a half years ago was really a, a housing organization. And so through a couple of efforts we made, we really got to understand and realize what it was we were lacking what it was that we thought we could possibly do if we had the right people. And since we've brought in Denise uh, Isiri Matsubara, who then handpicked Kevin Auger, who worked at the state over at HHFDC mm-hmm. for the last six and a half years, an absolutely brilliant guy. You know, it's like, if we're going to go back to sports, it's like bringing in coaches that really know the game mm-hmm. and it can really help direct us because unless you have people that can really understand uh, this complicated role of how the city can function, uh, with the resources it has available to us now, especially since both of them have extensive state experience in collaboration with the state, to me, this just connects all the dots. It really facilitates our opportunity here to work collaboratively with the state, and at the same time, uh, along with what we're doing in our Department of Land Management, uh, led by Kat Tachner, um, the things that we can do strategically for the city. I, I'm very excited about the possibilities, aided and abetted by an open collaboration with the state, but also the governor's emergency proclamation, and hopefully easing some of the regulatory burdens and what we can do with that. You mentioned that emergency proclamation. What does that do specifically for the city and county of Honolulu? You know, we're still determining that as of today. We're coming close, but as I said a moment ago, it does help ease regulatory burdens. We, we've got to take a look at what it helps us facilitate that we think we can actually build on. One of those is in the Bill 7 sector, uh, which has a lot to do with incenting uh, a program 
for private landowners to help us build housing. Uh, but there's some other amazing, amazing projects that we've already begun to work with the Hawaii Housing Authority on uh, that the city can help participate uh, in what we do with DPP and planning and permitting uh, and, and along with also what we can possibly do using our private activity bonds. So uh, it's, it's a myriad of things. You know, it's really, it's complicated. And, and I don't mean to make it complicated, but it is complicated. And that was one of the things that hit us we first came in and we tried to decide, okay, what is the role of the city? What can we do? What can't we do? Mm. And so in talking to people in a podcast like this, I don't mean to make it complicated, um, and we're working our way through it, but honestly, it's, it's hard to simplify it, but I think we have clarity now, at least on what we, it is we want to get done. And to that end, we hope to be able to contribute significantly to the governor's stated goal of 50,000 homes. Uh, over the next five years. Okay. The day after that proclamation was signed, you were on hand at the groundbreaking for um, Halava View Apartments too. Yeah. Kind of a neat concept because you can see the rail station there at Halava from, yeah. from that site. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that project and maybe its potential? Well, I think its potential is great because it's all affordable. I think it was 330 units. It's mm -hmm. the second installment. They have Halava View Estates 1 yeah. there now. And as they talked about that day, this was five or six years in the making. They had to go through a lot on the land acquisitions. and so. But anyway, nonetheless, they're there. And there were, you know, legal challenges there were financial challenges the city was able to participate help push the rock up the hill and get it over the top and i'm really pleased but i think more than anything since this one walking distance of aloha stadium mm -hmm. and all that that will represent ultimately ultimately maybe someday to whatever retail and perhaps even a stadium actually being built there not the least of which is the rail going by there and within walking distance of the station when you think long-term, when we talk about transformative, when we say things like it's a 100-year project and what you see today is really shouldn't be judged because what we're creating is really for future generations, that's what that speaks to. This is you know people who can live affordably near public transportation that can move them around the island where they want to go efficiently and effectively. That's a good model. Mayor, we've talked about gun violence on this podcast before. Um, but just last week, we had another deadly shooting, this time at a bar. What's your message to folks who maybe don't feel the safest right now in this? You know, I, I wish there was something magical I could say. This really boils down to bad people with bad intentions doing terrible things. And, you know, while we're trying to enforce the law as much as we can, especially when it relates to guns, you know, we've been very aggressive uh, on our on our. Uh, our approach to sensitive places after the Supreme Court ruled on open carry, but these are not these are not good citizens who who are qualified to carry a gun. This is a a bad actor at any time. I think the thing that really is of concern to me is that while crime is trending down and we have numbers to prove all of that, we're seeing more gun violence in Hawaii than I can remember. And I've been involved in. And, you know, through the news organizations doing stories over the years, you kind of have this sort of collective memory. I, I think that we see more gun violence today than we've ever seen before, and that's of real concern. Now, statistically, that might not hold up, but it feels that way. And that's probably because of the public, uh, the national narrative, where all the mass shootings, it mm -hmm. seems like you can't turn on a national newscast and not hear about some kind of a mass shooting over the weekend, if not multiple. In fact, the last time I checked, we're only a little bit more than halfway through the year, year that we've had more than 400 mass shootings this year and on its way to an incredible record-breaking 
year. And I hate to say that. You would hope that that not would be true. So when you bring it back home, knowing that Hawaii is not a gun culture, um, you know, if I could just say this, this might not come off right, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. You know, when I was a young guy, if you got into a fight with somebody in a bar, you stepped outside and you had a fist fight in the parking lot. Today, that's not what goes on. And so while I don't know the motive for this shooting, I understand it was for a pretty trivial matter. I don't know specifically, but I've been told that uh, when that gets released, this is one of those tragic things that shouldn't have happened. Somebody had a gun, and instead of working it out differently, they shot and killed somebody. That's tragic. I want to get to some of the questions and comments submitted by our listeners. This next one, or this first one, I guess, is from uh, Marcos. He says, Mayor, this isn't necessarily a question, but as a resident of Waikiki, I greatly appreciate and applaud your continuing efforts on combating homelessness and crime. A lot of the homeless feel entitled and by providing free government monies, food, and other free handouts, it does not really help the homeless to better themselves. It just enables these homeless individuals to continue with their bad habits and not contribute to society. Mark goes, uh, he goes on to say, let me be clear, I have a compassion for those individuals that really need or want to better themselves, but I do not have compassion for those who refuse or don't want to get off the streets due to their bad habits or addictions. Um, he goes on to say, he's actually a former outreach worker who worked in Waikiki. He did work in Waikiki. He says, mahalo and keep up the good work, Mayor Blangiardi. And I'm guessing this came in response to the story that broke about the homeless feeding um, from the church in Waikiki. And I guess well, the way we can expand on this is, Mayor, if you can just explain what happened from, from your side. Okay. Well, first of all, I appreciate his comments. And quite honestly, um, through the work that I did before becoming mayor and since, a lot of my own thinking has been shaped by outreach workers, not unlike this man, and, and how they deal because they've been dealing with the homeless population. And what's acceptable from a compassionate standpoint and what's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And clearly what I've said all along, is not a crime to be homeless or poor, especially. Um, but within that community, oftentimes a lot of bad people lurk. And they actually victimize the homeless population as well. And so we know from the arrest sheets uh, and the records, if you will, of a bunch of characters in Waikiki that have been down there to do nothing but uh, cause problems. Look, our, our side of it, and I'm not going to defend uh, necessarily because I don't have any interest in trying to um, win a discussion or an argument, but this goes back a couple of years ago. So we're in office six months ago, I mean, first six months in office, and as soon as safe travels, and we started to pull away from COVID as that first summer of 2021 came about, I took the entire cabinet down to Waikiki, not unlike we just finished doing 11 town hall meetings, and we had it set up with the Waikiki Business Improvement District Association that they would have selected groups along the route that we would walk. Mm -hmm. We met at the gateway of Waikiki, and we walked all the way down Kalakaua, swung a curve, and came all the way back down Kuyo Avenue. And in that context, we met with a lot of hotel operators, retail operators, um, and wanted to un understand and all of our hope and needs and wants to have tourism come back, what the state of the state was for them, mm -hmm. where their concerns were. And I would tell you, and I remember saying it a couple of years ago, how struck I was by the fact that all of them seemed to be of a belief that during COVID, the homeless had moved into Waikiki, were pretty much left unchecked uh, because there really wasn't that kind of monitoring. And within that homeless population, uh, a, lot of, a lot of bad guys had showed up. And, and that was 
No greater manifestation of that was what was happening on Ohua Avenue across from the Marriott Hotel. I remember meeting with Tom Foti, then the general manager, pointing out to me across the street. There they were, lined up all across the church, uh, street along the lines of the church. Wine bottles and booze bottles and beer cans and whatever strewn out. There's just a whole lot of unsavory people. And I'm not exaggerating when I say minimum 25, maybe more. And so we looked at that and said, wow, you know, and not only that, they told us that, you know, their patrons walking by, first of all, were afraid to walk even down that side of the street, ironically enough, on the adjacent to a, a church. But these same guys were come, sometimes coming across the street, taunting their patrons, going up the street on Kalakaua with the picnic tables, the pavilions. You know, we just needed to do something about that. This is early on in our mm -hmm. tenure, and we're, we, we, we're just, you know, starting to feel like we're coming out of COVID. Of course, this is even before the Delta variant hit, which then shut down things again for a while. But that said, uh, at that time, um, you know, I talked to the police about what we could possibly do, and um, and we were just trying to create a greater awareness. Well, we, we, we cleaned it up a little bit, but not much because we were all so... A year ago, summer of 22, uh, after a year and a half at this, I call up the priest, Father Akiona, uh, that is responsible for St. Augustine's, Augustine's, and I said that uh, I needed to talk to him. So I went, he said, your timing is good. I really could use your help. Went down, sat down with him, and I brought the police with me because I wanted to reassure him we could help him because he was asking for help. And it was obvious to me what we were dealing with not only just in, in the fact that they were homeless, but the kinds of people who were, who were labeling as homeless, you know, were really a bunch of guys who were getting arrested, arrested repeatedly by mm -hmm. HPD for all kinds of misdemeanor, in some cases, felony offenses. So he said, look, I have all the, all the doors of my church are boarded up, except for one entrance. These people have been urinating and defecating in my bushes. They've killed all the bushes. He made it really clear that he needs the help from the city because the church didn't own the sidewalks. You know, uh, the city owned them and he expected our help. And he also told me his concern he had because these very same people were now beginning to get disruptive in church and they were coming in and disturbing uh, parishioners in their time of worship. And so we said we would step in. That's why I brought the police. We promised that we would do that. And we cleaned all of that up in the ensuing year. And so a year goes by, and while we don't have this cast of characters out there, what had happened is that Father Archiona and his uh, people during COVID had moved the feeding out to the sidewalk, even though it's one hour a day, and I certainly have respect for the long history. Meanwhile, we're trying to clean up crime in Waikiki as the tourists have come back in good numbers and at the same time make people feel safe, both for our local residents especially, because we have 60,000 local residents living in that area, as well as our tourists. Just the right thing to do. And, and I, I would tell you, more than anything, public safety is our number one priority, all the way around, whatever that means, however that means. So, so that said, um, I came down to visit, I called him, and he said, well, your timing is good. He said, and you're a patient man. It had been a year, one year to one year, okay? Summer of 22, after addressing it initially in the summer of 21, oh, meeting with the summer of 22, now it's the summer of 23, 
I got to say, I said, look, Father, we've had some real success in Chinatown. You know, with River of Life moving out, they mobilized their ministry. They're still distributing food. And they had a much more aggressive program than you did. And they're, and they're doing very, very well. In fact, I think you saw last week there were comments in the paper by Rand Watermo. Mm -hmm. I'm not making this up. He's talked about the incredible growth. I said, I really think, because at that time we'd spent the year documenting, taking pictures of the criminal element that was eating at the church. Admittedly, a different food service, one hour a day, five days a week. Seems benign, but very enabling nonetheless. On our sidewalks, which was creating a problem. Uh, so I asked him, I said, I'd like you to consider, I couldn't authorize to order him to suspend your service, think of an alternative means of distributing your food like River of Life did. Mm -hmm. I understand if you know who your local families are that you claim need it, but I don't want to stop feeding these bad characters. Figure that out, Father. You mm -hmm. should be able to do that. There can't be that many families only doing it an hour a day. To which he said he would think about it, take it to his board, and let me know. He said, I'm leaving for the mainland tomorrow. While he was on the mainland, he called me up and said, I'm going to feed, I'm gonna, we're going to take your advice, and we're going to stop feeding on Ju Ju June 4th, July 14th, rather. I said, thank you, Father, I appreciate that. At no time did I ever tell me you have to stop feeding him. I suggested to him an alternative means, as evidenced again by River of Life and the success they mm -hmm. had. Because what was happening in both cases were these unintended consequences from good intentions, you know, of, of the kinds of people that were attracted and how they were abusing it. So we come to this agreement, and, and then lo and behold, I mean, the last time I saw Father Akione gave me a big hug and thanked me for being so understanding, so caring, and so helpful. I swear to you, he gave me a big hug, and I said, Father, God bless you. You know, my kid brother's a priest. I grew up in a Catholic church myself, Catholic school. I have, you know, in me this sort of reverence f for people who do that kind of work, nuns and priests and, and, and the caring and the love they have. So I, I could not be any more respectful if it was my own father or mother. I mean, you know, it's like that. And then I see him on television saying that um, I was heavy-handed. And on, by the way, that second meeting this summer, last month, I only went down with two people. It was private. No police, no nothing. We met in a room. He had one person with him. So here's the deal. When I tell him that, before he tells me they're going to close, he said, well, you're going to have to prove to me that, you, um, that the people we're feeding are bad people. I don't, I don't have any data. So one of the people I brought with me is an ex-journalist who, retired journalist, doesn't like a key, who we've gotten to know, had been photographing everything. So we opened up the laptop and we showed him all the pictures of these guys. The same guys with the same rap sheets, sure enough, getting food. So his jaw dropped. And maybe that's what he thought was heavy-handed because I had proof. I wasn't just speculating. But I saw him on TV saying I was heavy-handed. I really felt kind of hurt about it, more so than angry. Because I thought, where did that come from? I went down there right from the beginning trying to help him, trying to help the public, to do it in a loving, caring way, to try to show him a couple of cases to prove it would work, but both with River of Life, what they did with the ministry, and also the fact that even though he had great intentions, he was feeding this criminal element as evidenced by the pictures. I mean, what more was I supposed to do if I have the public's best interest in mind? 
So that's where it is. And now all of a sudden, he's turned this into some adversarial situation. And it's all over social media. And I'm seeing articles written about, you know, I'm, I'm cruel. It's not the case at all. I don't mind even being called heavy-handed, quite honestly. In the name of public interest, I'm going to say it again. You know, protecting our people is of paramount importance. And I've already read and heard enough police reports about some of the things that have gone on down there. And I have responsibility for that, as this priest should have responsibility for, and stop being in denial over it. So I understand he's going to move his feeding service on his own grounds. Mm -hmm. He's entitled to do that. We're going to continue to monitor the, the outside areas to make sure it doesn't create a public problem. But honestly, we went into this with the best intentions. I could not have been any more respectful. And quite honestly, I'm shocked at the way he's positioned this whole situation. We have another listener that wrote in. This one is from David. Why don't you stop homeless feeding and service in Kalihi? Like you did in Waikiki. I'm not sure what property he's referring to. But. Yeah, well, we didn't stop the feeding in Waikiki, as we just discussed. But I would like to learn more about the situation in Kalihi. I'm not aware of that one at all. Um, and so we'll, we'll look into that and try to find out what he's talking about. But, you know, again, um, we try to do this thing with as much humanity. Look at our core program. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is kind of mind-numbing for me, quite honestly, because I don't want it being turned like the government is against. That's not the case. David also asks, why are you and the governor building for housing in Kalihi, but not in Kapolei? Wow, I think, well, first of all, there's a tremendous plan for development in Kapolei. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at trying to build housing where our most needy exist in affordable housing. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the master plan for Kapolei over the next 20 years, that's well planned. And if you drive out there, you go to the Yava Plain, and you look at the fields that are just ready to have houses built on them, and the developers that are out there, and even the conversations we had in here, that's also part of the plan, but it's not necessarily what we're talking about with respect to in the inner urban core. On the front page of Monday's paper, there was a story about tripling our efforts when it comes to homeless cleanup crews. Yeah. Uh, I think they're referring to DFM. Businesses provided some appreciation to the city in that article, um, but they said it's difficult to prevent people from returning. Um, and then when people do return, sometimes there's a lot of new faces. That's what we're seeing, you know, and um, look, we're not alone as a city. And, you know, we, we need to come up with more places with wraparound services. In that same article, somebody was very astute mm -hmm. in mentioning that. It's something we've been talking a lot about, and that's where the collaboration with the state takes place because the city does not have a Department of Health. The state does. Governor Green and I have talked a lot about that. They have resources, monies that get appropriated, big federal monies that they could hire people. We need manpower to do that. We're at the same time now closing on several facilities where we hope to be able to create places where we could put wraparound services, have beds. We've got a couple of respite centers going, but the need is much greater. Uh, the governor likes the Kalhali concept. These are more like vertical Kalhalis. We gotta solve this, but you just can't pick people up. Right now we're doing it, we're moving them. Um, but that's, you know, in some ways not different than the compassionate disruption that I know doesn't deal with the systemic problems that we have to deal with. And that's what we want to be able to do. You know, I've talked about this before, but in our point in time counts uh, here on Oahu, more than 50% of the people have been on the streets 10 years or more. And most of them, a very high percentage, suffer from some form of mental illness or addiction. Or then you've got a few people out there who are just incorrigible who just say, this is how I want to live. All of that doesn't make it simple to deal with. 
You recently signed into law bills 37 and 40 that provide some relief for some homeowners here on Oahu. Um, what did it take to get those done? Well, I think it took the fact that um, there was such a, and has been, outcry of the increasing cost of living and what it is can we possibly do about it. So I want to credit Esther Kiaina. She was really the champion on 37 and 40. You know, we're talking about tax exemptions for Kapunas. We're talking about additional tax credits, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, tax credits. Um, and, uh, you know, to in, in, look, the expensive nature of living in Hawaii has always been the case, and, and but it seems to be more pronounced now than ever, and we're trying to be responsive to the extent we can be. So we were all caught off guard by the increase in home prices, so the that's why we did a one-time only $350 tax exemption, and that led to a discussion, a narrative about seeing what else we could possibly do, especially for people on fixed incomes. So we've increased those numbers. Uh, there, but you know, we are in a battle against food costs, energy costs, you know, housing costs, lack of rental facilities, all of that. So, we're very aware and trying to do whatever we can. And one of the things that we don't talk enough about that I'm really proud of is the success we have with the rent utility relief program and all the amount of money that we got distributed. One of the best cities in America doing it, some $360 million to 25,000 families. So, you know, we've been doing everything we can to offset or keep roofs over people's heads. This is just one more thing. But at the end of the day, there's a finite amount of resources you can go there, too, because the property taxes are how the city develops monies to pay for city operations. So you just can't sit there and peel everything way back. It's a challenging, challenging balancing act. But I'm very proud of what we're doing, and I think we're being very fiscally responsible. You also put pen to paper on Bill 28. That's the one with Narcan and some of the liquor establishments. Um, why do you feel so strongly about that one? Because fentanyl is, as I've listened to different reports and read, the most dangerous drug ever in the history of the United States. You know, it's killed almost 75,000 people a year ago. It's 50 times more powerful than heroin. It's very addictive. It's prevalent. Sometimes it's not just coming in as pure fentanyl. It's getting laced into other street drugs, which we've already seen people die from because it was in their cocaine mm-hmm. locally. Um, it is, if you listen to what's happening on the mainland, they're talking about more than enough fentanyl there to kill every single American. You know, they've never dealt with this yeah. before, you know. Um, there are two cartels in Mexico that send all their ingredients to China, and China then gets it back, and they smuggle it, you know, through. And I mean, all this is documented. It's all been well chronicled by national news services or whatever. And our federal government, the DEA, is trying to deal with it. But we're in a battle we've never seen before. I, I quite honestly, uh, the cartels are that powerful that and what they're doing, and, and they don't care about death. So in this country, when you do the math, there's more than 200 people a day dying. And a perspective I gave our team last week, I talked to him about it. You know, I'm a product of, uh, of really the 60s during the Vietnam War when I was in college. It was a big issue, you know. And, and when it all gets said and done, that was a horrific war following the Korean War, following World War II. that killed a lot of Americans, as people look at it now, unnecessarily. If you go to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., there's 58,000 names, 58,000 names. And that was a horrific chapter 
one time over multiple years in our history. Here's a drug that killed almost 75,000 people last year is projected to increase this coming year in ways that's just brutally lethal. I mean, it's, it is so quick, it is so instant, um, and it's ruining families. It's, it's, taking, it's killing Americans, and it's sort of like, you know, it's not a war on drugs, it's a war to save people's lives. And um, I talked to Chief Logan, he gave a report, and our fentanyl deaths this year alone are up 50% in Hawaii. If that's not a cause to keep you alarmed, I don't know what is. So having Narcan readily available, should somebody be exposed to it, would be number one, life-saving, if somebody's able to get it administered. And then if for some reason it's the wrong diagnosis, it's rendered pretty much, mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt you. So having this available in light of those incredible statistics and the threat of the fentanyl is the responsible thing to do. And I wish to God we weren't doing it. I wish, this is so scary. It's, it's so aggressive. It's, uh, I mean, the numbers of people dying are, are just really staggering. We dodged another bullet last week with Tropical Storm Calvin. Yeah. How pleased were you with the way that the city uh, went through the preparation, the posturing with a new DFM director yeah. uh, as well in the seat um, for that storm? Yeah, well, I was, well, you know, Hiro Toya, who runs Emergency Management Services, did a really good job. I remember uh, was almost two weeks ago now, uh, on a Saturday morning, we had our first call with the entire team from Civil Defense when Calvin was still a few days out, right, in preparation. And, you know, nobody wanted to overreact, but the planning was very, very thorough uh, on what we could anticipate and in, in, in even tracking the storm. So once again, you know, Hawaii for the most part was saved. I think, I'm not exactly sure how much rain they actually got on the Big Island, but here in Oahu it was nominal uh, and we were spared. But, you know, my biggest fear in this is that these storms come along and we try to prepare people and then it doesn't happen and everybody goes, yeah, no big thing. But we're dealing perhaps with a certain inevitability that at some point a storm is not going to pass mm -hmm. us by and, and I worry about people not being prepared. And so I think it was a great get back in shape for hurricane season type of thing. I'm hoping it doesn't happen again the rest of the year. Experts tell me it will, so I'm hoping that people began their preparations as a result of Calvin and that it will serve that purpose. And let's just hope for the best going forward. This week, Honolulu is playing host to the Sister City Summit. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about just, you know, what you hope to get out of that? Some of the dignitaries yeah. that are here in town? I, um, you know, it's gonna be, uh, as we begin today, an amazing experience because I have 10 sister cities to Honolulu, 10 different mayors that are here. We're doing this in conjunction with the sister cities from the neighbor islands, of which there are like three or four at each one. Uh, and the visiting mayors from Honolulu are going to come in as well. Governors holding sessions. I, I think when it all gets said and done, not to oversimplify it, but the business opportunity at hand for us is to see what we can do to help inspire them to have people from their respective cities come back and visit Hawaii. You know, we've really missed our Japanese visitors, and I understand. I mean, all the impact of COVID, the companies, the country's regulations that they put in place, and then surprisingly, you know, the whole yen, mm -hmm. uh, the valuation of the yen and the conver conversion rate, and it's not ideal, it makes it very expensive. I think it was up to 142 the last time I checked. Um, so that's like, you know, spending a dollar and a half on something would cost you a dollar. 
And when you do that in the kinds of money it takes to take a trip like this, that's a big surcharge. You know, so if the trip was going to cost you a thousand before, just to use simple math, it's now basically fifteen hundred on a compound effect that adds up very quickly and can be the difference between somebody coming and not coming and just waiting for prices to come down some, right? So we're dealing with that, but meantime, you know, we know there's a real pent-up demand in Japan, especially for Hawaii, especially for Oahu. That's where, you know, the bulk of the Japanese mm -hmm. visitors come. They come to Oahu, and we miss them. You know, not only do they come here, and they're very generous in their spending, and but they're also very respectful you know, culturally in every other way, uh, as we know. And so they're good for this place, and Hawaii's been good for them. We've always had this longstanding history. Um, so, you know, it would be nice to see that in this spirit of how we come back economically from COVID to have those to have those very special guests return to us. That's what I'm hoping we're going to get from the sister cities. That's going to be my message to all the mayors all the time. You are welcome. We want you back, you know. Please come back. As you work through those strategies, what kind of Waikiki are those visitors coming back to? What What are you going to be telling them? I know that there was, you know, that article in the paper about the new chefs that are kind of yeah. re-energizing Waikiki. Or like Marco said earlier, you know, he's very he's, he's seen a difference. Um, and safe and sound is working. What, what kind of Waikiki are they coming well, back to? Well, I think it's it's safer. It's certainly a more welcoming Waikiki because they've been missed. Um, you know, our iconic beauty still stands here. Uh, for them, but is, it is a place that is sort of evolved in a way to be very accommodating towards them as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I think they're coming back to a, a bit of a renaissance happening. I, I know one thing that hopefully what they'll experience is that hotels that will really value their return uh, because they have been missed and, and they're just having, coming back to a great experience, not the least of which is our consistent weather. And if I could just say that, I mean, I don't want to, uh, I feel badly about what we've all been seeing now, seemingly for weeks, mm -hmm. on what's happening on the mainland. I know this is not Japan, but you know, the, uh, the climate right now on the planet's not the best. We've been really fortunate here. So I think what they can anticipate is having that magical vacation that when they think about Hawaii and why they wanted to come becomes their reality. I think that's what they can anticipate. Well, Mayor, this is the One Oahu podcast. So for one final thought. Well, you know, it's hard to have one final thought. There are so many big thoughts going through our head. I, I would tell you, um, since we talked a lot about the homeless situation and the needy, you know, look, we, we, we want to be as good as anybody can be in the country and how we deal with our homeless population. And I talk about that in terms of being, you know, caring and thorough and, and productive in reducing our numbers and transitioning people. That's why we started the core program. I just ask everybody to have a little bit of patience. We're fighting a very tough battle, uh, but we're not shying away from that. We think we have a good strategy, and we're in the process of implementing it. And um, hopefully, we'll be able to. We'll be one of those cities. Other people talk about how how they did that. Mayor, thank you for your time. Thank you, Brandy. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week as we're joined by the director of the Department of Community Services, Anton Krucki. DCS, his department oversees housing, homeless services, workforce resources, nonprofit relief, and aging and disability resources. So if you have a question for Director Krucki, be sure to submit your podcast questions by heading to oneoahu.org slash podcast. Until next time, aloha.